0: Good evening, hey. uh, welcome to the 2019 Women in Church and Ministry Lecture. I'm Margaret Elwell, I direct the Center for Theology, Women and Gender with Stephanie Thurston. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce this evening speaker, Reverend Dr. Tracy C. West. Dr. West earned her BA from Yale University. She did her MDiv at the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, California and she completed her her PhD from Union Theological Seminary in New York. She is currently Professor of Christian Ethics and African American Studies at Drew University Theological School. She has twice received Drew's Scholar Teacher of the Year award and the Excellence in Teaching Award voted by Drew's Graduate Division of Religion Student Association. Dr. West is the author of Solidarity and Defiant Spirituality, Africana Lessons on Religion, Racism, and Ending Gender Violence, Disruptive Christian Ethics, When Racism and Women's Lives Matter, and Wounds of the Spirit, Black Women, Violence, and Resistance Ethics. She is the editor of Our Family Values, Same-Sex Marriage and Religion. Dr. West has also published many articles and book chapters on sexual, gender, and racial justice, on gender-based intimate violence and on clergy ethics. And she has served on several editorial boards including the Journal for the Society of Christian Ethics and is co-editor of the Journal of Feminist Studies in Religion. Dr. West is an ordained elder in the New York Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. She has participated in United Methodists of Color for a fully inclusive church and was a recipient of the UMC New York Annual Conference Methodist Federation for social actions Gwen and C Dale White Social Justice Award. She testified before the New York the New Jersey State Legislature in support of marriage equality, protested on behalf of LGBTQ equality, <clears throat> at the General Conference of the United Methodist Church, was interviewed in the documentary on violence against black women entitled No, and received Auburn Seminary's Inaugural Walter Wink Scholar Activist Award. The title of tonight's lecture is Solidarity and Defiant Spirituality, Africana Lessons on Ending Gender Violence. So please join me in welcoming Reverend Dr. West.
1: Hello, thank you so much. I want to thank Margaret for hosting me and helping me to make sure I feel welcomed and find my way, although I didn't come far, so I have to admit. Um, I'm just complaining about traffic on 206, not about air travel. Um, So it is a pleasure to be here with you. I have, I'm going to reflect on um, my latest book project, uh, Solidarity and Defiant Spirituality. So I'm going to say um, a little bit about about the process, so if you will just stay with me on how. I want to emphasize the how approach of this kind of work. A little bit about history and some of our current context in politics and church. And then I want to read an excerpt from the text. So uh, I will see how we do in terms of uh, time. If, if If it's getting long, I'll just sort of stop and make sure we have time for um, some interaction i want to emphasize that in my view we need better method both conceptual and practical Uh, my transnational africana perspective on defiant spirituality and intimate assaults that target black lesbians and gender non-conforming queer people for rape and for murder it relies on the construction of method okay i want to admit to you that i am a little bit obsessed with method so i have to say that Just at the start, um, almost all the work I write, almost all of my teaching uh, really emphasizes method. Uh, It's so important to me because how we think, perceive and act, it determines the end point, doesn't it? How, the how will totally shape where we end up, what our conclusions are, what the consequences are. Uh, Method reveals the ethics that make possible putting a stop to gendered violence. When I reference uh, my transnational Africana perspective and I mention gender-based violence in Africa and South America, I worry that Christian leaders, maybe not any of the Christian leaders in this room, but I worry that some, well, most Christian leaders, maybe some Christian leaders on this cam- on this Princeton campus, will immediately become focused on the need for a mission project. We need a mission project to those places in Africa, in South America, over there where the violence occurs. And that's precisely the method that I reject. U.S.-based Christians, um, for too many of us, coloniality and a rigid, bi-gendered, hetero-patriarchal norm, those are interchangeable, indistinguishable for most of us with Christianity. It's so often all that we know, and in some places, all that we study, we have to study. Augustinians heteropatriarchal understanding, right? A little bit, a few people, you hear that here, just a bit, we have to, that has to set our agenda. Um, And so when we understand those ideas, those perspectives as ordering our way of understanding Christianity The most accessible or imaginable Africana approach to homophobic intimate assaults or to the sexual exploitation of girls is one that is dripping with paternalism. One that has a complete absence of United States American cultural self-awareness and cultural self-critique. And I think we need a better method than that. Culture, so often understood as the unifying notion of nation and ethnicity and religious identity is so often, so routinely acknowledged in all conversations about gender-based violence as a core of the problem. Whenever there's a discussion about gender-based violence, inevitably there's a reference to culture But culture, especially in global conversations, as um, anthropologist Sally Engle-Mary describes, quote, has the whiff of the notion of the primitive, unquote. There's an assumption that, quote, culture more often describes the developing world than the developed one, unquote, right? There, they have a problem with culture. It's often the ways in which we reference these over these places abroad, such as the places Af- such places such as Africa or South America, which is where um, I, I did my primary work. So within the dominant mindset of white settler states such as the United States and Canada, Only certain populations are regarded as mired in a cultural trap of replicating religious and racial and ethnic and tribal traditions and customs of the past that reinforce violence against girls and against women and against gender non-conforming members of the community. Those groups are usually assumed to be racialized. Read non-white, right? The racialized people are usually seen as the non-white people from the global south or migrants from the global south to the United States and uh, other global north states, uh, descendants of African slaves. They are assumed to be in need of help. Yes, I'm I'm glancing over Dr. Day, who is one of my Mentors in thinking about the ways in which Christian ethics makes these kinds of parochial raced, right? Raced assumptions uh, and also gendered assumptions. And the ways in which certain lives, uh, women's lives, black women's lives, get written out or get written in as objects. And and so this cultural understanding is a sp- especially, especially dominant in the ways in which we talk about gender based violence. and, and and the kind of erasure that U.S. cultural patterns of gender-based violence. Um, one example that that I know you know well, but I like to cite, um, even though I know you know well, of is is um, the cultural pattern in our own history. Um, so Thomas Jefferson, uh, the colonial leader. Uh, Known, excuse me, known as an anti-colonial leader, excuse me, and third president of the United States, and known and taught for his 1776 elegant declaration of independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And how this fact of his writing those elegant lines And his role in founding the nation and the values that founded the nation is so often not taught alongside of his rape of his 14-year-old slave, Sally Hemings. The fact that Jefferson was about age 40 and was a child rapist of his slave has come to be regarded as an ordinary occurrence that reflects normalized sexual relations for so many white male slaveholders within historical context. It disappears within the broader narrative that culturally heralds his foundational language about human freedom and equality that are endowed by our creator. Uh, and, and note that religious language and that sort of divine imprimatur on the rape tolerance, right? The ways in which that erasure takes place of the rape of Sally Hemings. And so no matter what your racial origin or your national origin, when your family came to this country, uh, what you claim as your religious identity, we, all US Americans inherit this morally, Um, this morally um, hypocritical legacy um, that valorizes this kind of child rape and and this child rapist as we say he found our nation primarily on these understandings of equality. Now, in contrast, to this kind of normalization and erasure of gender violence as part of US culture, I want to posit, or I have posited in my most recent work, my encounters with Africana women activist leaders who were located in Africa and South America as resources for valuable knowledge that we need here in the United States as we, too, confront the problem of religiously and racially bolstered patterns of gender violence, historically, racially, and religiously bolstered patterns of gendered violence. Now, I'm not, I haven't done um, the usual portrait of an ethnographic uh, uh, ethnographic portrait or description of the other in which I separate myself. Uh, in fact, I really emphasize the dynamics of intercultural learning and intercultural transnational encounter. And in the encounter, in those encounters, they hold lessons about decolonizing anti-violence work and the possibilities for solidarity. And I want to just emphasize that those lessons include emotional and embodied elements. Um, as, as black feminist ethnographer and performance theorist Soyini Madison states in her implementation of this kind of method, she says, it's this kind of analysis must quote, embrace the emotions and sensuality. Now, of course, of course, I have to admit that We're not just talking about a historical, the ways in which history is imbibed by our contemporary audience and our contemporary sensibilities, not just an audience out there, but but the ways in which we imbibe history, uh, such as the Jefferson history. But the current political and social and religious ethos militates against your openness to this kind of Africana method. I know that it doesn't make sense to a lot of you. I know that as I stand here, that some of it, it seems a bit foolish in this current environment. We have a popular president of the United States, right? The polls, uh, they range 40%, maybe as much as 50% of likely voters approve of our current president, Mr. Trump who reportedly in 2018 in a conversation with the highest levels of national leaders and senators from across both major political parties, he was at a meeting with those senators about US immigration and migrant policies. Now remember that the migrant policies specifically related to asylum seeking, that those refer to silence seeking migrants, many of whom are women, fleeing gender violence, fleeing femicide, feminicide. So he's at this meeting and he's reportedly said, quote, why do we want all of these people from Africa here? They're shithole countries. We should have more people from Norway, unquote or we have the recent example that was in 2018 the more recent example of a few months ago of the president's former attorney Michael Cohen testifying before Congress in 2019 and reportedly saying describing Mr. Trump's statements about black voters in the US as stupid and and about and Cohen reports that Cohen asked uh, Cohen reports that Mr. Trump asked him, could he name any country run by a black person that was not a shithole? I mentioned these examples, uh, these two examples, not because I want to dwell on Trump or Cohen, I do not, but I want to, uh, but, they, but they illustrate the kind of current moral crisis that surrounds uh, and, and public discourse that surrounds it, um, that's related to the notion of black Africana identity as a source of valuable knowledge. This impacts your moral formation. It teaches you to observe or engage in the debate inherent, in a debate about the inherent capacities of black humanity. And for some of you, as you listen to the tweets and the conversations about about Africans, to perhaps doubt those innate capacities. So, as the support of this kind of ethos about Africa, this kind of ethos where this conversation about Africana knowledge and, 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 and capacity is occurring. Um, And this kind of ethos will most likely continue uh, probably, perhaps, until 2024. Um, uh, And especially because of the staunch support by white Christians, it saturates your moral sensibilities. And therefore, your political imagination is warped and strained. I understand that. I need you to know I understand that that it is an extraordinary methodological challenge for you to be open to the contention that I'm offering here that anti-racism is a crucial support for gender-based violence and that seeking out encountering, and learning from black Africana activist leaders in Africa and in South America is precisely the crucial strategy that we need for unlocking systemic support for for gender violence i note also another another reason that it is hard difficult, perhaps even impossible, for this methodological journey to have any success um, in in my ability, in in your receiving of it, or entertaining it, or considering it, is the current church climate. I, I have to name my church climate with which I'm most familiar with. I'm a United Methodist. Uh, it is one of a, a large Protestant. I know I'm, I'm in Presbyterian territory here, right? Yes, lots of Presbyterians. So, so you'll probably be happy with my critique of United Methodists, um, but, I, but I cannot help but note it is a large Protestant denomination. It boasts political elites from uh, Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton to former Attorney General. Uh, Jeff Sessions. Um, And when I bring up Jeff Sessions, I have to also note here, remember, um, because he also illustrates this point about the ways in which racism and religion collaborate, remember Jeff Sessions made a formal appeal to Christian scriptures. Remember when when he initiated the zero tolerance policy that resulted in the caging of migrants and the separation of families. He quoted, do you remember what scripture he quoted? Romans 12, yes, Romans. And and he personally, as part of the policies that he initiated uh, in the treatment of asylum seekers, he personally intervened in a domestic violence asylum seeking uh, uh, case of an El Salvadoran woman deliberately drawing attention to his policy of changing the criteria for asylum seekers that in order to exempt domestic violence as a criteria, as well as gang violence as a criteria for asylum. And that kind of policy illustrates the mutually supportive relationship between anti-Brown racism and indifference to women's pleas for protection from intimate violence that is part of the culture of current US policy. And I'm not just talking about discourse, I'm talking about policy in its expression of state moral- expressed through state morality. Uh, the policy expresses this kind of state morality that is completely intertwined with dominant Christianity but I return to the recent victory in the, in the United Methodist Church um, that made the headlines, uh, it, it, it made the front page of the New York Times, uh, the victory of uh, heterosexual superiority and the maintenance of a uh, bi-gendered gender expression as the primary gatekeeping criteria for ordination as well as for pastoral care for couples seeking marriage in their own churches. And remember that when heterosexuality is the primary criteria for what a a moral intimate marital relationship consists of, that is tacit, tacit permission for heterosexual marital rape and sexual coercion uh, in marital relationships, which is an ongoing and too little discussed aspect of uh, gender-based violence which with which uh, heterosexual married women uh, have to, um, in, in certain circumstances, contend. And in the United Methodist Church, our, uh, African churches after this victory uh, Occurred, African uh, churches, uh, delegates from African churches were the largest uh, delegates, uh, the the largest uh, groups of delegates among the United Methodist global delegates who voted overwhelmingly for the new harsh enforcement policies that efficiently and expeditiously eject anyone from the denomination who disagrees with the heterosexist policies. Um, and, and so for many liberal Methodists, including LGBTQ Methodists and their allies, Africans are seen as the problem in generating the heterosexist uh, kind of promotion of discrimination and, and support for, for hate that results from that kind of discrimination. And, uh, and for conservatives, um, um, the Africans are viewed as the most useful for aiding them in retaining this kind of heterosexual power and control um, that the U.S. conservatives have held on to since they voted it in in 1972. So whether you are a Methodist or a non-Methodist, uh, this is an influential large Protestant Christian group Uh, that relies, um, so therefore an approach such as mine that relies upon encounters with activist leaders in Africa, particularly gender non-conforming black lesbian leaders, uh, um, and it puts those encounters at the center, that may invoke dubiousness. That may invoke skepticism. But I would argue that that skepticism uh, underscores the power of method, the power of the method in particular that I am arguing aids in breaking up our tolerance for the ongoing problem of gender violence, that aids in really undermining the expectations of the usual approaches of US exceptionalism, the usual understandings in dominant Christianity of inequality that breeds and mirrors the violence and assault, the manipulation games of power and control that perpetrators and abusers play. I give you an example of uh, a, uh, you know, currently in the U.S. alarming rates of uh, murders of trans women of color have increased. Murders of trans women of color have increased with uh, an alarming rate in the recent years. Um, The uh, Human Rights Campaign Uh, did a report on anti-transgender violence here in the United States. And one of its uh, case study illustration examples uh, described how Poppy Edwards, a black transgender woman from Kentucky, was killed by an alleged perpetrator, Henry Gleaves, who according to Poppy's friends, shot and killed her after he became angry when Edwards told him that she was transgender and in the way in which he responded and in the way in which many other perpetrators of these kinds of murders, assaults, attacks, sexual assaults, heterosexuality and rigid binary gender norms are brandished by perpetrators. They're brandished as an understanding of what, is consi- of what is considered an inherent virtuousness in heterosexuality, in this kind of fundamental status of being heterosexual and conforming to binary gender norms. and and an understanding that there's an inherent virtuousness that's completely unrelated to how that heterosexuality, how those gender norms are lived out. This moral hypocrisy is echoed off of Christian claims about love for neighbor. Christians, I think, so frustrating, so frustratingly to me as a Christian ethicist constantly, relentlessly make this claim about how love for neighbor is their moral core. Christians claim it in songs, in prayers, in how they preach, in what they teach in Sunday schools. But they do so schooling Christians in this kind of duplicity and hypocrisy because they do so denying the reality of gender-based violence and inequality that is, and spiritual abuse that's interwoven, that's a part of Christian practices of Christian love of, uh, that's a part of the ways in which supposedly a, a pastor who asks, the, uh, the youth pastor who asks the teenage girl to stop on the side of the road and to um, sexually pleasure his genitals will say uh, in a public space, I love my youth group, I love my ministry, I love my people, right? parents who put their children, their lesbian and gay and bisexual and queer and gender nonconforming children out on the street, often into the hands of sexual predators, will have said from the time the child was at birth, I love my child. And the notion of Christian love that Christians teach embedded in that notion is this duplicity, because the chal- it is not challenged. That notion of love is not challenged in the ways in which violence and support for violence is part of the love that people are claiming. It's part of it in their practices of hate. Um, so it makes uh, it makes for this kind of despicable way in which uh, we we um, reflect the abuser and the perpetrator and the games that perpetrators often play. So whether it is in the utility of references to Africans at the center of the migration and immigration debates that are now playing such a pivotal role in US politics, or the utility of the role of Africans in uh, alignments of the US religious right within uh, within churches such as the United Methodist, but not exclusively within the United Methodist, the religious right, uh, within Presbyterian, within even UCC, Congregational, within uh, Catholicism, within traditions across uh, Christianity. Uh, It seems to me to be evident that a decolonial method, a confrontation of coloniality is crucial, is crucial now more than ever for constructing a transnational systemic approach to derailing the gender-based violence. Racism also needs attention because of its intra-group functions. I just wanna briefly at least mention the ways in which racism can encourage and and, uh, can encourage communities of color, Uh, particularly in some of my work, um, I emphasize the ways in which it can encourage a pattern of gendered assertions from some black community leaders about the black community's unifying priority to protect black men from the racist violence of police and harassment. And it can be a way in which anti-racist activities of leaders Uh, uh, of some leaders can identify black men as the primary targets uh, of white racism. And this enables a kind of sacrifice of activist attention to black men's intimate violence toward black women. And uh, even family members, uh, as uh, pastoral care scholar Stephanie Crumpton argues in her work, (laughs) A um, womanist pastoral care scholar uh, argues even family members and counselors can caution we don't get help from outsiders within black communities to maintain a private sphere that, that uh, is seen as a way of sh- uh, offering a shielding boundary that is a respite from the control and scrutiny of whites. Sometimes black communal, racial, and and Christian religious interests can combine in a much more aggressive way of targeting uh, gender violence, um, um, can be a a much more aggressive uh, gender violence supporting tactic. Um, I don't know if any of you remember that there was a great struggle over hate crime legislation in 2007 and 2008. And a group of black pastors uh, uh, took out a full page ad of USA Today um, where they were arguing against the inclusion of LGBTQ sexual orientation, um, protection for LGBT, uh, for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer members of our communities. Um, They were opposed to the inclusion of Um, protections uh, against hate crimes, Um, and in their ad they named it misguided compassion. Uh, So I want to say we need a method that breaks through the denial and outright lies that hide our nation's cultural systemic commitments to violence tolerance, and instead embrace a decolonial transnational solidarity with activist leaders working, who work in local, as well as um, uh, nationally on dismantling the systemic racial and religious collaboration that supports gender violence. And I would suggest we do so mining multiple forms of political spirituality. Sometimes, and in my work, de, deliberately decentering Christianity in that uh, mining of uh, multiple forms of political spirituality and engaging in strategic pra- practices of creating change. And I want to give you an example and just read you one example. Uh, uh, I'll read you two examples from my text um, as I conclude here. Uh, so this text, I am in South Africa and specifically in Cape Town. Uh, and I am, I am at a, uh, an organization called Free Gender and that's the, t- the name of their, the group, and it is a group of black, lesbian, and uh, gender uh, non-conforming uh, lesbians who uh, gather together um, in a, a community, um, and in, I'm in the community space in Kalaisha and um, they specifically Um, They live under the conditions of being terrorized by the threat of gang rape and murder, and uh, they create free gender space. And um, in their creation of free gender space, they create defiant spirituality. So I'm just going to read a section here from this text, from my text. Inside the meeting room, that large red cloth loomed like a stain that refused to be ignored, taking up almost a third of one wall with, quote, court cases printed at the top. There was a list of numbers and letters handwritten in a black marker that covered most of the cloth. The, the numbers referenced uh, circumstances, uh, several of the numbers identified circumstances of uh, the, the incidents. Uh, so I, I have this list and I'm just, it says rape, 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 murder, murder, suicide, murder, assault, an ominously empty red space of fabric was left below the last notation on the list. As the possibility entered my mind that more cases could be inserted in that space, I guiltily rushed it away, as if my thoughts could invite such tragedies. The cloth linked differing types of violence together as it bore witness to the communities costs, and losses. Acknowledgement of the suicides, assaults, murders, and rapes on the red cloth seemed to constitute a spirituality, a politicized collective grieving. It claimed the space to grieve and the impetus to pursue justice in the courts. The cloth marked the group's timeless allegiance to the lives of the victimized black lesbians, confirming a spiritual and political tether that defied the final ending their torturers had sought. The spirituality generated a defiant continuity, that is, a refusal to accept Neither the final breach in the mystery of death by murder or suicide, nor the perpetrator's last word to survivors in that psychic theft that accompanied the brutality and bodily invasion of the assaults. Feminist theorist Judith Butler writes about the immorality of state violence and torture that consigned others to a status of unworthiness to be grieved, explaining, quote, Grievability is a presupposition for the life that matters. Without grievability, there is no, or rather, there is something living that is other than life, unquote. In that free gender space, the losses of black lesbians victimized by violence were countered by the regard accorded them in ongoing collective grieving. The spiritual defiance this regard produced had to be characterized by vehement insistence on the moral irreducibility of black queer existence in all spaces and throughout all time. This form of intervention on the meaning of space and time was particularly crucial in the aftermath of violence intended to send a threatening communal message about the reducibility of black lesbian humanity to objects vulnerable to attacks at any moment. Skipping a few sentences. Several of the free gender members were energetic young young adults who appeared to be 20 or 30 years old. Some were Christian, some were not. Free Gender members started us off with singing. The unique unique sound of South African a cappello harmony filled the room. They sang, we glorify your name, with the melodious wail of the lead voice followed by an echo response by the other singers. We glorify, we glorify your name. They sang in English, then in hosa, and then in English again. With a slow steady tempo the tune slid up and down the scale in a heart-wrenching choral invocation of sacred spirit the naked beauty of their voices enveloped the room gripped me and held me the comfort their voices offered coexisted alongside my captivity so that red cloth hanging with its black handwritten numbers and letters. I swayed to the music, tried to sing with them, and swallowed tears before they were seen. Uh, I'm skipping, and I'm just giving an example of uh, the ways in which when I was there, I also spoke about the death of Uh, teenager here in New Jersey so I referenced um, um, Sakia gun and the ways in which the transformation of public space occurred um, at the funeral for Sakia gun and uh, the uh, transformation of public space occurred in the. US um, with the leadership of a, uh, predominantly, of a, uh, predominantly LGBTQ, um, Unity Fellowship Church movement and, uh, a church based in Newark Liberation and Truth. Um, so, uh, in the city of Newark, uh, Sakia, 15-year-old African-American lesbian. Her preferred self-presentation of baggy jeans and double X white t-shirts and a closely cropped afro marked her queerness as, quote, ag, unquote. Uh, Two adult males accosted Sakia. Uh, She was with her teenage friends standing on the street corner, um, an older black male, uh, propositioned them. She let them know that she and her friends were um, all lesbians. They were not interested in dating men, and um, a struggle ensued, and one of the men stabbed Sakia to death. Uh, US black feminist theorist uh, Zanzeli uh, Isoki described the tense atmosphere at the funeral of Sakia. Uh, in the space between police and the um, angry group of queer teenage youth. Um, there was a heavy police presence, and um, there was tremendous tension. And Aisoki's analysis, the leaders created a geography of resistance, respatializing that city setting, that street outside the funeral, that transformed it for Black queer people to create, if not a safe place, they could not have a safe place, but the leaders helped to create a place where they could still belong. The activism, I go on to say, of the Black LGBTQ Christian um, leadership demonstrated an embodied spirituality of solidarity with the murdered uh, with the murdered solidarity, with the m- murdered Sakia gun, and with the angry queer youth, the leadership focused on protection of the youth from the police. Through the spontaneous ritual of solidarity that they created, the leaders made a, a affirming space of belonging and access f- to the funeral for the youth. Um, It was an active expression of collective spirituality through political negotiation with the police and bodily witness to the validation, belonging, and preciousness of LGBTQ youth to their community. Just one more piece I want to read. uh, Just one more piece. Um, As the meeting uh, hosted by free gender, finally started to draw to a close. The honest and sometimes tense exchanges reverberated in the room. When one free gender member spoke up late at the meeting, she started out tentatively and then bravely admitted to wondering what Elizabeth and I had been thinking during their opening, quote, church songs. Remember I referred to the songs we glorify, right? So that's what she's referring to. Uh, When she, uh, the, the young woman referred to me as one of the quote, pastors, unquote, she recounted her experience of rejection by Christian leaders, and it provided some context for the expectation she then stated in our meeting that Christian pastors think homosexuals should not be allowed to sing church songs. Looking at me with increased self-assurance and assertiveness, she reminded me that a discussion linking Christianity and homosexuality introduced a very sensitive subject. As she continued, and in that moment, my association with Christianity had engendered distrust and vulnerability. It had cast self-doubt upon whether she could or should openly express her Christian faith in my presence because she was a lesbian. It had delivered the opposite effect from what I had intended or desired as I participated in the meeting. Her consideration of how I might have been condemningly judging her as they sang could not have been further from the spirituality that I experienced. I felt the homophobic terrorizing impact of our religion, mine and hers, and the impediments to solidarity it spawned between us. Once more, Christian spirituality could not be disconnected from its harmful political tentacles, especially for any conceptualization of spirituality that informed activist solidarity in working to end the violence. Even our shared values, free gender members and my my own, and moral relatedness could not produce Christian religious spirituality with the capacity to rid itself of the poisonous qualities of publicly disseminated Christian messages that incubated hate violence. And so I think we need method. We need a participatory method that confronts Christian coloniality. The Christian coloniality that adheres to our moral sensibilities, the moral sensibilities that structure space, even as we are trying to be defiant. We need a participatory method that replaces, or at least enhances, Me Too with a We Too solidarity and defiant spirituality. Thank you.